0: are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. This podcast forms part of a series examining how business can address climate justice. Together, we hear how businesses are putting people at the heart of their climate action. Now, palm oil is a contentious topic. On the one hand, its yields and efficient land use provides much needed income, sought after food, It's highly profitable and is used by many of us, if not most of us around the world. On the other hand, vast areas of tropical forest have been cleared to make way for vast palm plantations and these plantations are often monocultural, reducing biodiversity and causing ecological imbalances. And alongside this, sometimes there's issues with poor labour and pay conditions for plantation workers. So meet my social impact pioneer, Anita Neville, who after 10 years with the Rainforest Alliance, working to conserve tropical forests, and prior to this, time spent with WWF and E3G, the environmental politics think tank, specialising in climate diplomacy and energy policy. Anita is now the Chief Sustainability and Communications Officer for Golden Agri Resources, a leading palm company. Now we are meeting on the fringes of COP27 in Egypt to talk palm, climate conferences, and collective impact. So Anita, great to have you here. As I just said, we're in a very, very echoey room, so (laughs) apologies to all the recording here. Um, thanks for having us. And I wanted to start a conversation. What brings you to COP27? Why are you here? And um, what are you hoping to get out of it? Well, it's a great question. First of all, it's great to be here. And it's my first COP,
1: so I don't really know what I'm doing, to be honest <laughs> with you. I like everybody else who's a sort of first-timer. I've done the whole get my badge, wander around, big-eyed, going, wow, how much did that pavilion cost? And wondering about just the mechanics, the sheer mechanics behind a COP, because it's immense. Mm. And I think you kind of understand that it is an immense process, looking at it from the outside as somebody who's worked in sustainability for more decades than I care to own up to. I kind of understand it. My husband's been to COP before, but this is my first one. And I've been to a biodiversity COP, and it's a much smaller beast, or at least it used to be. Mm. So why are we here? Well, finally at COP26, The forest and climate agenda really came together and actually climate, nature, food really started to come together. And Egypt made a commitment to putting food at the heart of this COP as well around implementation. And so as Golden Agri Resources, world's second largest palm oil producing company, we're very much about how do we produce food, palm-based products that create food in a sustainable way, in a forest friendly manner. And we're really interested in how we do that and how we deal with uh, emissions related related to land use change and drive those down in alignment with a one and a half degree future. At COP26, Golden Agri Resources, and at that time, 11 other agri-commodity trading companies made commitments. They signed a statement of intent and make commitments to establishing a roadmap by COP27 that would set out how in palm, cattle, soy and cocoa, we were collectively going to drive down deforestation to zero and help align with a one and a half degree future. And I know companies like ours have made these commitments before, so it's all like, yeah, but haven't we been there, done that? But I think this is the first time that, first of all, palm, soy, cattle, cocoa, all in the same room together, all discussing the same issues, learning from each other uh, and pushing each other to deliver the roadmap that was launched here in Sharm Sheikh on Monday. So that's why I'm here, to talk to people about that and about how we realise the intention behind that to really drive down deforestation to zero by 2025, which is our target
0: date, and then also how do we make sure that we're doing that in a just way. And, and 2025 is just around the corner. I mean, that's, yeah. That's a steep... I mean, there's so much ch- chatter around greenwash and, and those sorts of things. How do you make sure that you don't, don't fall into that pit of, as you said, commitments being made for things being missed? I think the greenwash discussion at the moment is really
1: interesting because I understand the frustration. So I out myself. I've been doing this for 30 years and... I've kind of heard everything, or that's at least how you feel when you're as old as I am. And I'm quite intrigued by the greenwashing discussion right now. When is greenwash, greenwash? And when is it people saying, this is what I intend to do? And we're even talking in certain parts of Southeast Asia now about green hushing. When I joined Golden Agri in 2016, it was not a company that talked about what it did. And it was not a company that talked about what progress it was making because the expectation of management, um, keeping in mind I work for a Chinese-Indonesian business, family, majority family-owned business, expectation of management is if we're not hitting everything at 100%, we're failing and therefore we're open to criticism. So we'd rather say nothing than be criticised for making progress but not hitting the exact targets. It's a huge educational challenge to say within a business like that, you know what, we need to go out there and tell people what our target is, what our intention is. Here's a practical example. Gar set out a target of 100% traceability to plantation by 2020. Traceability is a fundamentally important sort of keystone piece of being able to understand your supply chain and then actually address issues within it. No one wanted to say that out loud in case we didn't hit it. And guess what? We had two years of a pandemic, so we didn't hit it. Today we're at about 96, 97% traceable to plantation. In context, we have 530,000 hectares of our own plantations, but about 50 to 60% of the oil we trade comes from other people. That's more than 350 third-party supplying mills. It's at least, based on what we've mapped so far, 125,000 independent smallholder farmers, but we're not finished yet. So it's a lot of work to understand that supply chain. And even though we've missed the target, like we're near, we're very near. <laughs> that last four to three to 4% is gonna be super hard to achieve. But the more we talk about it, the more we're out there explaining what we do, two things that are super important happen. First of all, in our supply chain, they understand our intention. They can choose to work with us or not, but they know where GAR's going and they know exactly how we're going to um, support them in transition. What are we offering? And secondly, buyers, financiers, district governments want to participate in this process. right? So you get the support and necessary investment. If we don't talk about progress because we're worried that we're going to be accused of greenwashing, then we never explain just how hard this work is, how many person hours it needs, how much money it needs, and importantly, how much time does it really need? Because frankly, we pick these dates out of the air a lot of the time, right? We like round numbers. So it's 2020 this, 2030 this, 2050 this. Don't really like the halves, you know, as somebody who's had significant milestone birthday during a pandemic, I'm definitely going for the half decade (laughs) from now on. So I think it's really important that we don't confuse real greenwashing, and it happens absolutely, with companies saying, this is my intention. Maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't hit it, but this is my intention. I'm gonna talk about how I aim to get there. And I feel like I talk about our traceability efforts, our no deforestation efforts
0: all the time but I'm probably only reaching like 1% of no, who no, needs to hear. Totally fine, and and to the point about your uh, traceability and no deforestation pieces, but others listening to this podcast, would you share just a couple of points on like how you go about it so that others might be able to learn from you as much as you? Sure. So it's a combination
1: of uh, <laughs> blood, sweat and tears more seriously uh, self-declarations from suppliers, so we do a lot of surveying and then we ground truth that with a combination of satellite monitoring. So we have 100% coverage via satellite of our supply basin, uh, so owned operations and third party. And we get regular snapshots so we can look for changes in the landscape from the no deforestation, no peat component of our commitments Uh, We also do things like uh, looking at uh, local media monitoring for any community conflicts, land claims, NGO reporting. So we're constantly monitoring our supply chain using technology, but also listening tools to see where do we need to deep dive. We also overlay spatial analysis to look at suppliers who may be in very close proximity to areas of high risk, that could be protected forest zones, national parks, the Loza ecosystem in Arche would be an example. And then we identify of those that are sited in those places. So palm, when it's sourced to a mill, everything's based around the mill, that mill will source from a 50 kilometer radius. So we're looking at quite a large area of land when we're doing these monitoring. We identify those mills who within a 50 kilometer radius, we consider to be high risk. And then we do site visits. Site visits generally five days, four people. One person's focused on certification expertise, one on environmental biodiversity, two on community uh, and worker sort of kind of stuff, the social side. Always two because you need one to talk to workers and one to talk to community. So five days, four people. So in we have about 350, Supply mills at the moment, more or less. Uh, it fluxes uh, since I joined in 2015, 2016. Then we had around 430 odd. So we've removed suppliers out of the supply chain who are not compliant with what we call our, our social and environmental policy. That's our NDP commitment. That non-compliance can be based on results of the kind of self-declaration, satellite monitoring, spatial analysis, Site visitation that I've talked about, or it could be more basic stuff, you know, not prepared to deal with the contracting appropriately, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. If we find a supplier who we've vetted and are in, then subsequently there's a deforestation alert or another kind of alert. We have an extensive grievance process, which actually the palm sector has. Uh, agreed to, like, what are the timelines? What are the the number of conversations that you have? What constitutes a good action plan for remediation or addressing? And so we we run that process with an engage then suspend approach because what we want is people to do better. What we don't want is simply to exclude people and pretend that the problem will go away on its own. It will not. So our approach is engage first, work with those who really want to change, provide all the necessary support. But if you're really not going to do what you say you're going to do, we do suspend you. And as I said, about six years ago, we had around 430 odd. We're now at 350, 359, something like that. So we remove about 7% of our supply chain year on year.
0: And then, how um, do you grow a business when you're basically saying no more deforestation? One question, and then, and then <laughs> my other question on the flip side, as a consumer, how do I, how do I tell good palm from bad palm when I look at the ingredients in my I don't know, chocolate bar? So I'm going to take the last question
1: first <laughs> because it's incredibly difficult. Um, I've worked in sustainable agriculture certification for many years. And it's way easier doing this if you're working on coffee or tea or cocoa because, like, the, the crop is the product, especially in coffee and tea. Cocoa, it's an ingredient, but you know, it's the main ingredient or the most uh, important ingredient in a chocolate bar. So it's really easy to do direct-to-consumer communication and link, you know, a label on packet to the, to the product It's much harder in palm for a variety of reasons. First of all, generally, especially in Western societies, we don't eat whole palm. And in fact, no one eats whole palm. We talk about palm oil as though it's one thing. Actually, it's what we call crude palm oil, which comes from the orange pulpy bit of the fruit. And then you have palm kernel oil, which comes from the nut inside the fruit and is creamy and rich. Palm kernel oil, or PKO, is what tends to go into oleochemicals, which means you're putting it on your face, mm-hmm. it's in your lipstick, it's in your shampoo, it's in um, a lot of hand sanitizer and things, particularly the ones that don't dry your skin out, you know, the ones without alcohol. So you're generally not eating or using whole palm oil. You're using fractions of it. And when it's such a small component of a product... It's really difficult to label it. That doesn't help consumers very much, right? What we want to do is move it so that sustainable palm oil is the only palm oil on the market. And I think there are many initiatives from NGOs. There's some scanning apps that people can use on barcodes. But I appreciate, as a mother and a busy you know, person myself, we're not always good readers of labels, which is why I don't think we should rely on them. Frankly, my, my my personal mission is everything that we produce and consume should be produced sustainably, consumed responsibly, and then put back into the circular system. That's why I do what I do. I'm particularly focused on how we do that in the food system and with supporting smallholder farmers. So we need to be asking manufacturers to buy from you know, certified sustainable sources or to demonstrate through their corporate communication how they're supporting more sustainably produced palm. So it's not easy for consumers, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wish it were. It would make my life easier. To your question about how do we grow, I hear that question more and more in my job. And I think we made a decision as a business in 2014 to voluntarily stop new development of land. So we haven't Grown our footprint outside of um, some acquisitions of pre-existing land, but we've not opened up any new plantations ourselves. And so our focus has been on yield improvement. In Indonesia, where our business is based, our company performs very well in terms of yields. We deliver about five, five and a half tonnes per hectare. Independent smallholder farmers who make up something like 40% of production in that country are often only growing one to three tons per hectare. That's generally because of poor seed, poor farming practice, you know, wrong soils, ill discipline, range of different uh, reasons why those trees are performing badly. Once you plant a palm, it has a life expectancy of 20 to 25 years. So farmers are very reluctant to remove it because they have to wait four years before the plant starts fruiting. So we work extensively with independent smallholders on replanting schemes where we provide supporting finance, but also good agricultural inputs. So we have a, our own uh, seed development and R&D facility that's developed seeds that are more drought resistant, resistant to um, disease, but also produce more fruit at a much younger age, completely free of GMO. This is natural selection. Uh, And so we work with them to utilize these better inputs to learn good agricultural practice, help them finance their replanting, and then also connect them to markets as an off-taker. But it's not easy. Like we have to focus on how do we add value in the business and not simply think about growing from a size or scale perspective. People want deforestation-free palm. They want exploitation-free palm. They want low GHG palm. We can be providing all of those different types of palm if we continue to invest in sustainability and demonstrate that we are a good actor in this space and a reliable actor. We also have to deliver on quality and price. So it's it's a tricky
0: balancing act. Always a balancing act. (laughs) It's always a balancing act. There's always trade-offs. Yeah, absolutely. So back to COP, we are sitting on the fringes just outside uh, cop at the moment Mm. for anybody who's not been here before what's it like how are you finding it and and also you know what is the role of an organization like yourselves to come to this sort of place cop is a weird
1: beast first of all it's huge you know no problem getting your step count up wear very flat very comfortable shoes uh my first lesson yesterday didn't do that i'm doing that today I'm also really struck just by the sheer variety of organizations and individuals who are present. I've only really dipped my toe in. I tried to get a a very good overview of uh, the Blue Zone yesterday. So many organizations, so many countries represented young people, people who've obviously been around as long as I have. So it's a real mix. It's also, frankly, overwhelming. At any given moment, I think you could be sitting in any of 10 or more sessions on topics from, you know, how do we finance the energy transition that's necessary? How do we finance that food system transition that's necessary? How do we address plastic waste? Um, It's it's really, there's just so much going on. And, And I guess a question that I have around that is, when there is so much happening, it's like a sensory overload. And I just wonder, in that much noise, who's listening? That was my sort of takeaway yesterday was, this is a lot. Are we really listening? On the the plus side, you know, you pick up meetings. I love a pick-up meeting because you're running into people that you would perhaps not see like for a long period of time. So that's been quite interesting. But it's a—it's mostly my impression is of overwhelm and there's a lot of people talking at once. Who's listening? Why are we here then, given that? You know, palm has had an understandably very negative image, reputation in the agricultural commodity world because of its historic links to deforestation. But palm has also come together as an industry, and I've worked across a few, but it's come across uh, as an industry in a very collaborative way over the last five to 10 years to really tackle deforestation within supply chain at a collective level, right? Pre-competitive collaboration. And we're seeing the results of that. Indonesia in 2021 achieved its fourth or fifth consecutive year of lower deforestation rates compared to the heady days of sort of 2010 and 11, where Indonesia was clearing 1.1 million hectares for palm development. In 2021, that was closer to 50,000. It's not nothing, right? There's still more than we would like. We still need to address it. A lot of that deforestation is now happening in what I would call the fringes. So that very much links it to the other big conversation that needs to happen here at COP and is starting to happen, which is around the just transition and the need for us to focus on livelihoods and income generation in poorer countries. And in Palm, that's really the key. That, and what I'm talking to people about is how do we finance smallholders and communities so that we can keep forests standing and they can earn meaningful incomes over the long term
0: in doing that. And and that's very much in the the space that we work in with business fights poverty and a lot of what we care about and the practitioners that we're working with are trying to figure out that piece. How do you put people at the heart of your climate action, your climate strategy, your deliverables, etc. Is there anything in terms of tips or hints or ways that you've learned to sort of try and do that that might be useful for others listening? So
1: we have, over the years, looked a lot at how we eliminate fire, to use an, a, a very specific example. Fire and haze, is huge issue in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Generally, annually, we've had um, three straight years of La Niña, so we've had a relatively good fire seasons over the last few but we know that, you know, that cycle will swing the other way. And so over the period since the 2015 fires, we've been investing in what's called Desamakmur Paduliapi, or fire-free villages. This is working with village communities to look at how we avoid deforestation linked to burning for clearing land by looking at what we unfortunately title alternative livelihoods. And my argument is, it's not an alternative, it's just a livelihood. And really looking at how we can, as a business, as a big business, kind of handhold, micro, small, medium enterprises in the rural communities in which we operate to give them choices that don't involve burning forests to open up land for that little bit extra income. So that might be looking at an alternative crop Uh, So, you know, not non-palm growing, how that links to food security, which also has, you know, an income trade-off. So we do horticulture work. We do work in other commodity crops like coffee and cocoa, a little bit of rubber. We do work in livestock and proteins, fish farming, goats, to build up community resilience but also provide options. Where we want to go to next, because we've been doing that at village by village level, and anyone who works in this space knows that that's a lot of work, but not very scalable. We have about 60 villages that are covered in these programs, and we run them over three years with the ambition that we get them to self-sufficiency in year three, which anyone working in this space will know never happens. Three years isn't enough. So what we want to do is shift our model to a more regionally oriented community learning center kind of environment. GAR can do what GAR is good at. We're really good at agriculture. We know how to grow stuff. We can teach you how to grow stuff. We should play in our lane because what we're not good at, surprisingly perhaps, is marketing crops that aren't palm. We don't understand the market. We don't have the connections. So we're not any good at that. We're also probably not the best people to be providing financial literacy, digital literacy programs, but we're a great connector. So we can bring all of those different service providers into a shared space. We've mapped all of the communities in which we operate against government socioeconomic indicators and their targets so we can focus our efforts on the communities that need the most help most quickly. And now we're talking to investors and buyers and even governments here at COP about What is the, when we talk about these trillions of dollars available for forest conservation and a just transition, how can that be translated into deliverable amounts of money to these communities? So that's our pathway. That's how we're working. Number one lesson is it takes much longer than any of us want to admit to. Three years is not long enough for us to help a community really solidify into a new set of practices and to have successful businesses. We know that most small businesses in the developed world fail. So why we have an expectation that cooperatives in remote rural locations are going to win the lottery every time, bewilders me. We need to be there and do more handholding, but we also need to recognize that as a business we should stick at what we're good at and then provide an environment and a community of practitioners we can provide the space got plenty of that but we want to build a community of practitioners to work with us to help rural entrepreneurship
0: and my final question for us today before Anita to shoot off to the blue zone once again at COP27 what's next for you both perhaps today but <laughs> also going well, forward Today
1: I'm gonna hopefully continue this line of conversation. I'm heading to a DevEx event and then uh, catching up with my Indonesian team who are here, their first COP as well. So um, that's quite exciting. Uh, We have four of us here together, uh, including myself. So that's today. Um, Looking forward though, you know, it's great being here, talking to you, talking to other people, in the sustainability space who are very passionate about driving the climate agenda and the one and a half degree pathways forward. But the real work starts at home. And my next step is to go back into the business. I have a board meeting coming up. I have a sustainability committee meeting coming up. Explain to them what we've announced here and what we're doing here and what that means for the business and, and answer those tricky questions about
0: how do we grow? if these are our commitments. Well, on that note, uh, I'd let you get on with your day. Anita, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks.
1: Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.